strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Welcome, welcome to my study. Please have a seat with me. I, I see you eyeing the many volumes on display. Some of these are very old. Some date back to the 16th century. Uh, but of course, I, I also keep up on the latest research. Uh, that wall of leather folios over there, it's all recent material, all downloaded from the internet. And I have the text reset in letterpress. The bindings all done in England. The stitching's done by children with particularly nimble fingers and at an orphanage for the blind. They're blessed with an exceedingly fine sense of touch. It's all they know, really. Each Christmas, I send them a gift basket, or Wilkinson sends it. That's Wilkinson standing over there, my butler. He'll be reading our quoted passages tonight. Pleased to meet you. He has a lovely voice, just a natural, completely untrained. Thank you, sir. Did you see the little tape mark on the floor I put where you stand? Yes, sir. So just stay on that. Of course, sir. And three inches from the microphone. Yes. And for heaven's sakes, don't grab on the mic stand like last week. It makes a terrible noise. I do apologize, sir. No it's... need to apologize. It's just that it's a full 30 minutes of standing, sir. Don't you have a cane or something if you need support? That's not what a mic stands for. No, of course. We talked about you sitting. Yes, and how it affects my voice. And your lungs. You're not breathing properly when you're hunched down in a chair. Full lungs and full voice. That's the Wilkinson I need. Yes, sir. Of course. So, enough of that. Let's get started. Episode 2, Valpurgisnacht Continued. For those who haven't tuned in before, I'm Al Reidenauer, and I started Bone and Sickle to explore the intersection of horror and folklore. It was my way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book on related themes. Last time, in episode one, we talked about how Valpurgisnacht was used in the 1931 movie Dracula, while in Bram Stoker's novel it was St. George's Eve that uh, occasioned the same fear of evil spirits in the Transylvanian locals. Uh, we also looked at some common superstitions and practices shared by these two occasions, a discarded chapter from the novel Dracula, and some milestones of Gothic literature this chapter paid homage to. I also mentioned a possible underlying pagan tradition that the church might have usurped and associated with uh, either St. George or St. Valpurga. So, this St. Valpurga, she was originally from England, a missionary sent to evangelize the pagan Franks in Germany. She lived a good part of her life as a nun in a monastery in Heidenheim, Bavaria, 
where she died on April 30th, hence the date. She was buried there, but then later her relics were transferred to Eichstätt, where they were placed in a rocky niche. There, the bones began to drip to exude a miraculous oil, which miraculously had the power to work miracles, uh, to cure all manner of ailments, especially rabies. Valpurga is the patron boss when it comes to that particular disease, rabies, and for that reason, sometimes she's depicted with dogs. And there's also an early representation of her from an 11th century codex showing her holding stalks of wheat. So that's led many to conclude that she took over for a pagan grain goddess, uh, perhaps the figure celebrated in that Valpurgisnock, St. George, what have you, pagan holiday underlying all this. Like any saint, and despite the less than lovely name, she does have her namesakes, but we don't find a lot of Walpurgas living up to her saintly reputation. Uh, the Nazi medical researcher Josef Mengele's mother happened to be named Valpurga, that's one. Then there's a Harry Potter witch named Walpurga Black, who I take it is not a very likable character. And there was an American housewife, Walpurga Osterreich, in the 1930s, who for 10 years hid her lover, Otto, in the attic of the house she shared with her tragically oblivious husband, who became a bit more tragic when Otto, from the attic, came down one evening and fired three lethal bullets into the guy. So, uh, mothers, don't name your kids Walpurga. Because the witches and dark otherworldly powers are supposed to be particularly powerful on Valpurgisnacht, a lot of tradition associated with this day is geared towards driving off witches and evil powers, or at least keeping them at bay. There are some good ones in James Fraser's 1890 book, The Golden Bough. Though he advances some anthropological theories that are now outdated, it's a great source for cataloging folk practices and beliefs that are now long gone, but were still known in his day. Here's some he offers. In Voigtland, which is an area of Germany bordering the Czech Republic, he mentions children lighting bonfires on hills and leaping through them, lifting burning brooms or tossing them into the air. They say, so far as the light of the bonfire reaches, so far will blessing rest on the fields. He talks about similar practices in Moravia, Saxony, and Silesia, and Tyrol, and Austria, all German-speaking lands, where he says they, quote, gather black and red spotted hemlock, rosemary, and twigs of sloe, twigs that are resinous and will readily burn, which are fastened on poles and ignited, also mentioning that the houses are all supposed to be cleaned at the end of April and fumigated with burning juniper berries and the herb rue. Many instances of using noise to drive back the witches are also mentioned. Cracking whips in choreographed rhythmic unison, um, a custom I also found in my Krampus research as being used in the winter to drive away evil spirits. 
and also the use of bells, pots and pans. And amid all this hubbub, he says, all scream at the pitch of their voices. Witch, flee! Flee from here, or it will go ill with thee. But there's more. They then run seven times round the house, the yards, and the village, so the witches are smoked out of their lurking places and driven away. So that's what's needed to fight witches. Uh, if you know a better way, feel, feel free. In other areas of Germany, he says, straw figures called the Walpurg are also burned or were burned. And another writer I found who in 1897 wrote a book with the odd title, The Chances of Death and Other Studies in Evolution, Woman as Witch, mentions youthful gatherings where as he says, quote, One of their numbers stands upon a hillock or stone and calls out the names of maid and youth, pair by pair, adding, In this year to wed. Each pair must then keep together at all the dances of the year, and the maiden places a wreath round the hat of her sweetheart. He also adds, We are clearly dealing with a fossil of the old temporary sex relationship meaning those witchy orgies which he believes were once part of Valpurgisnacht. So the real epicenter of all this devilry and witchery, the Valpurgis Ground Zero, the witch mecca of Germany, in fact, the place to which witches from all over Europe were supposed to fly on Valpurgisnacht, is the Brocken, a mountain sometimes also called the Blocksberg. It's the highest mountain in Germany, north of the Alps, and situated along what was once the border between East and West Germany. It's part of the Hartz Mountains, a region rich in legends, all sorts of folk tales of underworld riches guarded by dwarves, princesses kept by evil giants, and even a cave in which a witch lived with a unicorn guardian, and that's just naming a few. What really put this mountain, the Brooklyn, on the map, and for that matter, brought Valpurgisnacht itself to worldwide attention, is that guy whose name you always feel awkward pronouncing, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. But pro tip here, that uh, O-E in his name is the old way to make uh, the O umlaut, the O with the two dots, um, and to make that sound in future. You make an, it's called an E rounded. You make an E sound and then you round your lips. E, uh, Give it a try. Go ahead and practice. So, this. Goethe, as you might have heard, wrote an epic two-part play called Faust about a scholar and magician who sells his soul to the devil for all the knowledge and pleasure in the world. It's usually considered the greatest work in German literature, so as a former German literature student, this means I'm tired of hearing about it and probably won't go into too much detail, but we can go over a bit. 
Suffice it to say, in part one, which was published separately in 1808, long before part two actually, uh, there's a scene where the demon Mephistopheles takes Faust to the Brocken to witness the witch's Sabbath. For Germans, this is the same as Shakespeare and Macbeth for us, uh, forever fixing how we think about witches. Um, and despite being such a mighty work of literature beloved by the German people and scholars worldwide, there's only a few lines that tend to be quoted, at least when it comes to this scene, and namely they are the witch's chorus going, now to the Brocken the witches ride, the stubble is gold, the corn is green, there is the carnival crew to be seen, and Master Orion will come to preside. So over the valleys our company floats, with witches a-farting on stinking old goats. Even in this little snippet, it's annoying that I will have to explain Orion, which I also, of course, had to look up. Um, it turns out... Uh, Orion, or Urian, Orion, is a sort of uh, circumlocution, a way not to say the devil's name, since it's bad luck to use the actual name lest you summon him. Um, and for some unknown reason in the 17th century in Germany, it began to be used like Joe Blow or Good for Nothing, or a name for an unwanted person or a guest or someone you don't want to run into, like, for instance, the, the devil. So. Um, and I guess I should explain the rest of the scene. It starts with uh, Mephistopheles offering Faust a magic broom so he can fly to the Sabbath. But uh, Faust is too much of a killjoy and wants to walk. They end up following a flickering will-o'-the-wisp, a ghostly flame or spirit that's supposed to lead people astray normally. Uh, maybe something like the blue flame appearing in Dracula. And they uh, eventually reach a vantage point over the whole, all the festivities, seeing the whole mountain appearing to be on fire, filled with bonfires, and Faust almost gets knocked down by a wit zooming through the air, and they bump into a group of mortals representing various occupations, and bitch about how the world's gone on to hell, and then an old witch peddler tries to sell them some magical doodads, and they blow her off, and... Faust ends up dancing with a witch that sees some swarming spirits, including a very pretty, sexy Lilith, and generally has a good time. Um, Medusa shows up, and Mephistopheles doesn't want Faust turning into stone, so he distracts him, uh, pointing to some actors who just happen to be there for no known reason, are putting on a play called Valpurgis Night Dream, a sort of riff on Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night Dream, and... That's a whole other segment having nothing to do with witches, but I guess, you know, it's Goethe thought it would be fun to write. It's satiric, and he just calls it a little intermezzo. And so we'll just leave it there. Uh, the influence of this scene goes on and on, and it's trickled down uh, from into everything from Black Sabbath writing a song called Valpurgis to a German cartoon for kids it's called Bibi Blocksburg. Bibi Blocksburg, the kleine Hexe. The idea of witches gathering on mountaintops for their Sabbaths has been widespread in Central Europe, and particularly in Germany, where there are a number of actual sites that have that reputation, or had that reputation at least. There's the uh, Heuberg in the southwest, 
Uh, Berg, by the way, means mountain. The Staffelberg in northern Bavaria and the mythical Thanosberg, Venus Mountain, which was assigned various locations and where particularly racy orgies and feasts were said to be held, although in this case within the mountain, under the mountain. Uh, now, I, ideally, if you're a witch, you're going to want a pretty out-of-the-way place, a pretty tall, inaccessible mountain where you can have your secret party wave at the top, and you're going to be above the tree line. And rather than blaming the climate, it would be said that the lack of trees on that site was because of your nefarious gatherings, and hence you have the devilish bald mountain of, uh, for instance, Mussorgsky's composition based on folklore, that is, Night on Bald Mountain. Ooh, it's the Fantasia music. Uh, by the way, the Hollywood Reporter mentioned a couple of years back that Disney was going to take the Fantasia demon from that segment of the movie and give him his own live-action film, hinting that he might get a sympathetic makeover, a backstory he's probably bullied. Just kill me. But the Brooklyn, it starts emerging as Germany's number one witch mountain in the 16th century when Catholic clerics first mentioned it. Uh, it's then around 1540, it pops up in actual witch trial records, uh, both the name, the location, and the occasion of Alpurgisnacht. Then in 1668, both the mountain and the witchy activities get their own book. Uh, that book was uh, known to have influenced Goethe. It's Johannes Petorius's Blocksberger's Verrichtung, which means something like Blocksberg Project. Remember, Blocksberg, Robin's same. It's a really obsessive cataloging of all the details of this association between witchcraft and the mountain, explaining in great detail, for instance, how the witches are said to get there, how they flew, uh, with the assistance of magic ointment in some cases, or on brooms, shovels, or pitchforks, or maybe it was flying animals, uh, goats, calves, wolves, cats, and dogs. They're all mentioned as suitable rides. I don't think it says how the animals themselves could fly, or the brooms, but yeah. He emphasizes the importance of Alpurgisnock. It's the date. Um, but he also notes that in general, Monday to Tuesday and Friday to Saturday are best suited for uh, witchy Sabbaths. And Valpurgisnacht, he says, is really special because on that night, the devil selects the most beautiful witch to be his bride. And he goes on to explain that May happens to be an especially good time uh, for all this because in May, women are particularly sexually receptive, and that May weather is also most favorable for orgies. Then, in the first half of the 18th century, names like Witch's Altar and Devil's Pulpit start getting assigned to geological features on the mountain. And around the same time, uh, people start explaining the witch folklore in terms of actual pagan practice, deciding that the mountain was in fact a, an actual ritual site of the old Saxons. A lot of people still believe this or want to, but 
Even by the 1800s, archaeologists were skeptical. Uh, the location is it's ridiculously hard to reach, and it's made worse by the fog and cold weather at those heights. And uh, no archaeological finds really back up this story, and academics today don't really believe it. There is an actual history of Valpurgis Night celebrations on the mountain, but this is more in the nature of uh, literary commemorations, readings of, of Goethe's scenes. At least this is how it begins in the 1800s, but eventually more gets added to this, and by the 1920s you have trainloads of people unloading up there to see what's going on. Um, now, in the last decades, a lot of this has been uh, cut back. Uh, it's been discouraged because of, of environmental concerns, because the mountain also happens to be home to a lot of endangered species, so the bonfires are not allowed, which kind of kills the fun of things. Emphasis seems to have shifted more to the nearby town of Tala or something called the Witch's Dance Floor, which is near that town. Um, it's uh, some sort of ancient slab-like formation that's now decorated with a handful of bronze sculptures of nude or comical witches and imps. And like the uh, Brocken itself, it's also said to be the site of pagan revels in Saxon days, and quite likely wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry to be such a killjoy. Honestly, I wish I could tell you that these celebrations should be on the bucket list of every fan of horror and folklore, but from what I've seen, they just look god-awful. Online you can find uh, countless pictures and images of drunk, middle-aged German women in ugly, cheap witch costumes getting drunker and dancing to reggae or whatever. Uh, there was one that went viral a while back, um, and there appears to be a terrible rock concerts by glorified wedding bands and fireworks and laser shows to further spoil all the atmosphere. And uh, you can take your screaming kids to a zoo that's popped up on the site and buy handmade witch dolls, probably made in China. And uh, supposedly there are 100 to 150,000 tourists that come to that part of the Hearts Mountains every year just to make it more overcrowded. So, don't get excited about that. But there is one cool thing at the Witch's Dance Floor. The Valpurgis Hall is a beautiful old building from 1901, uh, exhibiting some murals depicting scenes from Goethe's Walpurgisnacht inside. It's built like a medieval Germanic longhouse, but somehow incorporating little hints of Art Nouveau and a style that you also see in the murals. It's, uh, I'll post some pictures of that too. And um, a better experience would probably be had in uh, more off the beaten track towns down under the mountain like uh, Stiga, where there's a celebration with Satan making his appearance on a torch-bearing boat that's rowed ashore for a more modest bonfire spectacle. And in the town of Shirka, there's a parade of little kindergartners dressed up as witches and devils. Um, there's also the nearby town of Venegerode. Uh, uh, <laughs> you can look, I'll spell these things on, on the website. And it's supposed to be, well, I, you, I can see it's like a fairy tale fantasy of beautiful old cross-timbered houses and gothic towers 
if you're into that sort of thing. So, you are. Yeah, you are. And you would also be into the Brocken Spectre. It's one more thing you should know about. And see, if, I hope, uh, if you happen to be under the right circumstances. It's a weird optical phenomenon that takes its name from the mountain. And it appears in low-hanging clouds or mist as a huge, looming, elongated shadow figure encircled by a rainbow halo. And it's caused by the sun behind the human figure projecting his shadow on the clouds. When atmospheric conditions are right, I think it's the particular size of the water droplets. It all has to be in place. And of course, these are moving figures, as long as the person whose shadow is being projected is moving with additional movement created by the movement of the clouds. So it's positively eerie. And uh, some people say it was probably a contributing factor to the mountain's witch-haunted reputation. It's also sometimes called a fog bow or mountain specter, since of course you can see this phenomenon on any mountain, haunted or not, uh, from any elevation where the atmospheric and lighting conditions are right. Uh, I'll put some video of these online too. I don't know if this is saving the best for last, but one last tidbit that I was particularly excited to discover a while back. Uh, this is a while back. It's in 1932. A magical ritual was conducted atop the Brocken in the presence of a large crowd of people, including 42 photographers, 73 journalists, and a film crew. It was the idea of British paranormal researcher Harry Price. He was famous for exposing fraudulent mediums, uh, revealing possible subterfuge behind the case of Geff the talking mongoose on the Isle of Man, which turned out to not be true. Uh, also for investigation of the Victorian Gothic Borley Rectory, which at the time was called the most haunted house in England. Price uh, performed the ritual or experiment or publicity stunt based on the Bloxburg Tryst, uh, a ritual taken from the 15th century volume on magic called the High German Black Book. The book records how the ritual supposedly once was conducted on the mountain with miraculous results, its object being the transformation of a virgin he-goat into a young man with the aid of a maiden pure in heart in fair white garments. Uh, Price rented a goat and recruited an actress, Gloria Gordon, for the maiden. And there's some wonderful photos I'll put online of how he put the whole thing together. The ritual which Price followed, to a T, instructs the magician uh, on the construction of the magic circle and further directs him thus. The goat he putteth before him, the maiden taketh her place by the side of the goat, which she leadeth on a white silken cord. He then lighteth a bowl of fair incense, which burneth for fifteen minutes, the student repeating the following in all lowliness. Tare e insignum tenuate deus obscura promens. Price reports, 
The spectators were intensely interested, and you could have heard the proverbial pin fall during the performance of the ritual. Again quoting the morning newspapers, the goat remained a goat. Price never expected miraculous results. Uh, rather, he just said he was there to expose the fallacy behind it all, and it served his uh, not insignificant need for publicity and was uh, also a nice theatrical wrap-up for what was a centenary uh, celebration of Goethe's Faust. So anyway, I guess, I guess Germans have a sense of humor. At the time, Price wrote that he had heard from locals that there were still witches in the Hartz Mountains, and, and here I'm quoting, A real live witch was to be found in or near Vernigoroda. At very considerable trouble, and with several hours motoring, we duly arrived at Vernigoroda for the appointment, or rather disappointment, as we discovered that the Sauberin, or conjurer, was a buxom young actress who had once played the part of the stage witch. Of course, we all had a good laugh, and that was the end of our witch hunt. And that is also the end of our show, this second episode of Bone and Sickle. Thank you so much, Wilkinson, for your outstanding readings tonight. Happy to be of service. Such a fine, rich voice. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening to future episodes. Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. Please visit the website, Bone and Sickle, all one word, where you can find show notes, images, and video of uh, topics mentioned in this podcast. Uh, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, YouTube, and on the website. You will also find links on our website to our social media pages, which we're just now setting up. And there is also a Patreon link where you can donate to support this foolhardy undertaking. Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of this podcast. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>